Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Michael Jarvis, Executive Director of the Transparency and Accountability Initiative, a donor collaborative working to expand the impact and scale of transparency, accountability, and participation interventions. I'm really pleased to be talking to you about the future of the transparency movement and hear about his time at the World Bank's Global Governance Practice, where he sought to strengthen good governance in the critical oil, gas, and mining sectors. Michael, thanks for doing this. I'm really pleased to have you on. It's really nice to see you again. Thanks for making the time. Oh, thanks for the invite, Dan. And it's always good to talk to you and lots of interesting issues of the day. So happy to explore with you. So we've done some work on anti-corruption at CSIS. Can you tell us about why does transparency matter? Why is that important? I think it really comes down to, on one level, just building trust, which we know is an increasingly difficult thing to do. And a lot of trust in institutions has been undermined in the past few years. So putting information out there and not just the transparency of actual data and information that goes out, but the transparency of processes, whether that's within government, whether that's within industry and within the nonprofit sector too, and philanthropy, the groups that I work with, I think it's critical that all of them sort of work on a principle of transparency as a starting point. And If you look at any of the issues that are paramount today, fighting the pandemic, climate crisis, even this growing movement around injustice and racial inequity, I see a critical role of transparency as an ingredient to then getting to better outcomes and accountability across all of those fronts. So it's something we need to be paying attention to. And I think it can be in service a lot of these bigger goals that we all have. Okay, so what is the Transparency and Accountability Initiative? How has it started? Who pulled it together? So we started, we're actually at the 10-year mark. So it began, a number of initiatives have with a gathering that the Rockefeller Foundation sponsored at their Bellagio Center. And the hills of Northern Italy apparently are conducive to brainstorming and new ideas. I think it's Lago de Como and I think it's the pasta. Whatever it is that produces some magic occasionally. And that led to a sort of commitment amongst a mix of funders, including what was then DFID, now Foreign Commonwealth Development Office at the UK side, and some private foundations to think through how could they strengthen what was then a pretty emergent area of pushing transparency and accountability as global norms. So they started research on how this could apply in critical sectors, such as the oil gas mining sector. They looked at the role of technology in promoting transparency and accountability in government. They did convenings and and it led to increased investment in a number of core organizations, both across government and civil society that would promote this agenda. And then I would say about halfway through this past decade, there was a shift to say, well, look, this field if you want to call it that, of transparency and accountability is more established. And we want to have a space where purely as funders, we come together and strategize, how do we make the most of our investments? What are the new issues that are arising that we need to pay attention to? So TEI has evolved from being perhaps more originally a space of research and convening to now being more a direct funder collaborative of matching up their investments thinking about what's working, what's not, scratching each other's back occasionally to say, well, look, if we do something here, can you do something there? 
but all with an eye to increasingly embedding transparency and accountability at national or even subnational levels and supporting champions within government and industry and, and civil society who do the real work. But we're enablers of making the donor support be more effective. How did you end up in this business, Michael? I've always believed in collaboration and partnership approaches, much like yourself, Dan. So I'd originally worked in private sector on looking at industry codes of conduct and what are good standards within industry, then felt that I wanted to take that to a slightly bigger stage. And the World Bank was setting up a corporate responsibility program around that time. This was in 2003. So I made the transition to move to the bank and to work there on really private sector roles in development. And we worked on business roles in fighting malnutrition. We looked at how do we improve supply chains, benefiting local communities in the agricultural sector. And we started to look at the role of business in promoting integrity and anti-corruption. And it's that thread that got me into working more on good governance issues. We did partnerships with sort of industry, the audit sector, and a number of government entities around how we could strengthen sharing of information and promoting of good principles on integrity. We started to look more at what could be done in specific sectors. And all of it is built around the idea that multi-stakeholder approaches can be effective. There's, you know, we need scrutiny and we need work that's done by any one of those individually, but also trying to think about where they could come together, frank exchange of ideas, holding each other to account, and mechanisms, I think, like the Open Government Partnership that emerged under the Obama administration and where TI helped actually second someone to help catalyze that and build that idea out. I think in an age where there's perhaps a tendency right now to look nation first and or even individual first, I still think it's worth reflecting on there has been a lot of progress made through these more intersectional, multi-stakeholder approaches. And that's what gets me out of bed every day is thinking about ways we can take advantage of those. If I say the word COVID and transparency, could you word associate a little bit with that? I get the sense that it's been a disruptor and an accelerator on different things for the transparency agenda. Exactly. I think initially, like we had a flood of calls internally amongst the funders to work on the space about how do we help our grantees recover and transition through this disruption, whether that's just working from home or loss of opportunities to follow through on research and programming because of lockdowns or losing funders and some worries about governments using this pandemic as an excuse to heighten certain restrictions that limit what civil society partners can do. But I think the bigger thrust is actually on the opportunity side. And there's two elements to that. One is actual dealing with the healthcare aspects. And I think some of the most exciting elements we're seeing is work that had been invested on transparency, third-party monitoring of how governments, for example, using procurement platforms. Those have been able to transition into those that are specific to the healthcare response. So monitoring PPE purchases, other forms of treatments. And those governments such as Colombia that invested in open contracting platforms are seeing some of the spillover benefits for that. So they were able to quickly adapt and create specific COVID-related purchasing agreements and frameworks that built in these principles of transparency would allow scrutiny to make sure that certain companies were not being favored for the wrong reasons, that there was value for money, there was competition, that none of these were being all the bad habits of non-competitive procurement or, you know, the minister's son's company gets preference. We've been able to provide an extra layer of scrutiny and that built out of sort of investment in things that were across all sectors prior to the pandemic, but now have been able to pick up 
specific to that. And I hope that we can extend that to vaccine rollout too and the COVAX facility picking up principles of transparency of who gets those vaccines, who's negotiated to provide them and on what terms. I think those are essential for public trust in the vaccines and for the effectiveness of the rollout. And the other piece, which, you know, I'll let you come back and see if we want to expand it, would be on the economic relief side and monitoring of... Who's getting the bailout checks and why and how, right? Exactly. And there's a world of groups who have been investing on open budgets, on who's analyzing who's getting subsidies and tax deals and trying to close loopholes in that regard, which, again, we were able to harness and piggyback on some of that work and infrastructure to say, what do we know about what's happening in these relief packages? What are the latest debt deals that are being negotiated? And how do we have a better understanding as an international community about what those implications of those deals are? There's a lot of potential corruption through these deals that are being made. There's also just inefficiencies that we could be countering. And I think availability of information, the ability for those within government and outside of government to raise their voices and ask questions and flag concerns and to have some kind of feedback mechanism to go with that is important. And that is true in the United States or in Europe, as it is in Myanmar or parts of Latin America that have been deeply affected by the pandemic. So you know, it's not the first order priority, but I think it's an important element to build into how we respond both through just providing care and minimizing the spread of the pandemic, but also then dealing with the economic consequences that come out and follow from that. One of the things, Michael, you worked on at the World Bank was on extractive governance issues. And that's been a field, I would argue, has been around for at least 20 years. I think EITI emerged in 2003. I think it was a wonderful innovation. So oil, gas, and mining, could you talk about the progress of those sectors as it deals with, let's call it transparency, and why do those industries get so much scrutiny, and why are they so vulnerable to you know, accusations of a lack of transparency, if I can put it that way? It's a fascinating sector to follow. So you're right, there was this strong push in early 2000s to reduce opacity in the sector, and initially that had a focus on just, you know, what monies were these? Publish what, what you pay. Exactly. Publish what you pay. And that translated through. It's a great example of an effective civil society-led campaign that resulted in the creation of EITI and this multi-stakeholder initiative that has 50-plus governments now and who've committed to requiring certain disclosures. I would say there's been sort of a number of evolutions. That. So one was the recognition that publish what you pay is not quite enough. Like To know if you were getting a good deal as a country and particularly for those communities most affected by production of oil, gas and mining, we needed to know what taxes came in, but we also needed to know what was in the contracts that they first negotiated. And so what should have been paid, not just what was paid, but also there was growing appetite to know what are some of the environmental impacts of these, how much water are these groups using? So there's been this exponential growth to some extent of demands on industry and government to know information that can help communities or nations as a whole make assessments of, are we seeing the benefits of this? And where is the money going? And if I'm not benefiting, then who is? And how do we make an adjustment and see if that's a fair deal that's in place? I'd say one of the worries is that it's led to a huge wealth of information that we just didn't have and many spillover benefits of that, but not as much use and uptake and leading to practical reforms and that ensure that we are seeing better benefits as a result. 
So you asked why there's so much scrutiny to this sector. I mean, one is there's just huge sums of money involved. You know, individual deals can result in the billions and they're multi-year, if not multi-generational deals in certain cases. So they matter to the long-term economic health of these countries. And there are a lot of opportunities along the way for money to end up in certain pockets and not others, for pressures to be bought that favor certain players over others. You know, geopolitics get involved as well as dynamics at the local level. And it's been a very secretive sector. So there's been huge progress in terms of opening up certain parts of it. But the political dynamics perhaps underlying all of that are less changed. So I think those players who've really committed to the transparency piece and see themselves as leaders in good practice are trying to bring the others along with them. And that's why an initiative like EITI is helpful because it does require all companies within a country that signed up to have to disclose. It sort of no longer becomes voluntary at that point. But I still think we need to make a case of how is this translated into direct benefits that an individual citizen would recognize in Kenya through their new oil development or increased mining in Guinea or in Peru. And that's the piece where you need a lot of other players involved. And there's a complexity there that I think the transparency alone is not enough. We need mechanisms of really being able to hold political players to account to ensure a level playing field across the companies that are operating in those spaces. And yes, the information is vital. We need that, but we need other pieces alongside it. Okay. So let's talk about infrastructure. Another sector that I think is also gets a lot of scrutiny and has sort of a mixed reputation is the, let's call it the infrastructure construction sector. It's an enormous part of a country's future. China is also a big player in the infrastructure space, has put huge sums of money there's been issues around lack of transparency around contracts and about the debt levels and procurement. So are these fair criticisms? And talk about that. I think they're fair criticisms on the terms of which they're made. So if you look at the Belt Roads Initiative, there is a, undoubtedly a huge uptick in Chinese investment. And as you say, particularly in the infrastructure sector, we need to be better understanding. There's a lot of concern around favoring of Chinese companies who would then do the follow-on work that comes in under those investments. So I do think there is a need to upholding a general principle, not specific to China, but sort of as part of a, any country partner's general principles of, you know, there should not be exceptions for work that's done under certain types of investment over others. And we need this transparency as a way to be able to gauge, is a country signing up and making a good deal on these bases? So I don't think it's specific to China, but I do think the scale of those investments add an extra layer of pressure about why we need those pieces. And certainly on the debt agenda too, and I actually think it would serve China's interest too, because I think there are a lot of assumptions out there that there's what China would be able to do if there's default on those terms. People often cite the example in Sri Lanka around the port there. But if you actually dig in, there's less, I think, to those fears than perhaps some argue. And I actually think if China were more proactive on insisting on transparency of what it's negotiating, it would reveal that there's not as much dark forces at play as some like to conjecture. And I think there's room for increased partnerships about those investments too. So that infrastructure is definitely needed. And as long as there's open competition for who can then implement and build that infrastructure, consultations on who's going to benefit, then in general, it should be a positive. But without some of this transparency built in, without some of the accountability to the communities who get most affected by construction of these projects in many cases, we're missing the ability to make these more sustainable and general public good. Not all of these projects get built. There's more on paper than there is in practice. So we also need better information about which of these deals actually follow through and lead to bricks and mortar on the ground. And again, 
how does that play out against what other countries are investing and the overall development strategies of those countries who accept those investments? We have our website, Reconnecting Asia. Are you aware of it? I am, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we've tried to do that where we've, in essence, had an army of young people where have kind of been trying to track from sort of press release to actual follow through and actually using satellite data as well. It's quite an interesting exercise, I think. And I think John Hillman has done a really bang up job. He just has come out with a book about Asia and infrastructure is quite good. If I said to you, we need to have debt transparency and everyone needs to kind of be transparent about debt transparency, what's your reaction to that? Yes, but not motivated from an anti-China agenda, motivated from it's just a good thing to have in general. And particularly with mounting debt, not just across sub-Saharan Africa, but many parts of the world, I think it's reasonable to want to know the full extent of liabilities that a government has signed up to. And I know of cases from working in the bank that the Ministry of Finance wouldn't always know what a particular other ministry had agreed to, and they wouldn't even have the full overview. So I think some of the international pressure to have debt transparency actually has spillover benefits at a national level sometimes to empower those actors who want to have a clear sense of what are our total liabilities and what does that mean for our needs to raise taxes, our limits on spending. It's just critical to good governance and sustainable finances. And if we need to draw attention to some of these bigger incidents and cases as a way to sort of create the case and pressure for that, then so be it. But it's something that should apply across the board. And so I, I'm all for the World Bank championing that agenda, for the IMF championing that agenda as a sort of cross-cutting element of good public financial management. It's a standard issue. It's not against anybody. Exactly. Yes. Okay, so tell me about over the next one to two years, what's in your inbox? And if you were advising the, on what a new Biden administration ought to focus on overseas on the transparency agenda, what would be some of those things that you would recommend that they put their attention on? Number one, I think, would be a signaling of the importance of this agenda. And, you know, there's no doubting whatever your views of the Trump administration, that there was a pulling back from international engagements, particularly on the good governance space. So pulling out of EITI, I would say a reduced engagement in platforms like Open Government Partnership. So would you recommend they rejoin EITI? I would. I don't see what the cost to that really is. Like many of the US-based companies are already providing that information in other contexts anyway. The cost of producing it is overblown. It was a symbolic fight, I believe, in many ways, particularly from the oil gas industry, to have that clawed back. So I think it gets you a lot of goodwill by re-engaging in platforms like that that don't have a lot of cost to the administration to doing it. I think more interestingly will be there are some issues that have arisen and become more prominent over the past four years around fighting cross-border corruption, closing some of the loopholes for money to flow across borders, including to influence elections and spread disinformation, for example, where U.S. leadership will be helpful. It's not all that's needed, but I think talking with allies and trying to figure out what are actions that Congress can take, that the executive can take, that will address some of those loopholes will be important. And, you know, there's a decision coming up within the Defense Appropriation Act that will be voted on in December that would actually require a beneficial ownership register for the first time for in-house use within the U.S. government. There's pieces like that, that there's infrastructure that the U.S. can build that will enable better law enforcement worldwide that I think a Biden administration could take a leadership role on. What I'm less clear on is, will there be the same broad-based commitment to open data and citizen engagement that was sort of so part of the vibe of the Obama era? 
And obviously, Biden then was sort of very much a part of that. But I'm intrigued to see how much that becomes part of the vision of his administration as well. But I think there are some urgent places that have become more urgent over the past few years where we just need to try and minimize the harm that the US is doing or can be a conduit to doing. And there's a lot of sort of reinforcement of these norms that have been eroded. But norms are not enough. I think we've seen that you need some rulemaking and procedures in place that back up what have been just convention. There'll be a lot of debate about where to start priority-wise on that front. Okay. And then how about over the next 12 to 18 months, what's your agenda at TAI? Frankly, I think one thing is just to maintain donor interest in the good governance agenda. We all know it's sort of built into large donors like the World Bank now, like USAID as a matter of course, but there are so many pressures both on bilateral and private funders right now. Resources are spread thin. They want to be working on racial justice. They want to be working on climate. Everything has to have a COVID-related justification to it. That I do worry that some of the core funding that's gone to democracy, human rights, and good governance will be under pressure. And I think we need to bring in some of the new philanthropists to sort of recognize that if you care about health or you care about education, which you know many start with those kinds of service delivery orientations, you need to be thinking about how transparency and accountability help play out to deliver those health outcomes or education accountability is critical if you want to see teachers in school and kids getting the education that they deserve. So we need to bring the transparency and accountability components to other agendas and encourage funding as sort of integral components there. And climate is one other where I personally think that we have not yet done enough to think about finding ways to increase scrutiny of corporate actions, climate risks. There's much more that we could be doing there, both working with the investor community, who in many ways gone ahead of what governments are asking, but also with government partners, with the multilateral fora, thinking through ways in which we can ensure that country commitments are being followed through on auditing of corporate climate risks and statements are verified. As that gets tied to pricing of lending, to a lot of these very practical things that people really care about, I think transparency and accountability can really be in service of that. So we've been trying to map out entry points, working with the renewables, the wind down of fossil fuels, some of the big Paris commitments, and trying to see what might we bring that we've learned from 10 years of funding transparency and accountability work that would be helpful to those agendas and moving them forward. So that's one I feel we'll really miss a trick if we don't have some answers to show in 18, 24 months time on that front. This is great. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And I'm really looking forward to staying in touch with you on this agenda. We've done a lot of work on the anti-corruption agenda. One of the things I would just leave you with is they did a word cloud search of words on Twitter about five years ago in Latin America. And the top three words were corruption, education, and inequality were the three top words in the word search in terms of words used on Twitter in Latin America. Anti-corruption is a vote moving issue. It's always been in my view that it's always smart for the United States to get at the front of the parade on anti-corruption work. We did a paper, I guess, about nine months ago now making the argument that we need to get back at the front of the anti-corruption parade, not only because it's the right thing to do, because some of our competitors don't play by the marquee of Queensbury rules. And so having a level playing field is not only good for American business and the right thing to do, but it's also going to be, whether we like it or not, part of the great power competition view, or at least from an American perspective, I'm not saying for the international system or for philanthropy, but one of the reasons that you're going to get the United States to the table is for that reason. I completely agree. And I think 
the signs are positive. If you look back at the article Joe Biden wrote in Foreign Affairs six months ago, if he follows through on that agenda, like he, he at least recognizes all these issues. And I think it's the role that groups like CSIS play in providing high quality analysis, research. That's what the funders I work with, they take advantage of that. I hope the governments are taking advantage of that too. And there's probably more we could be doing to better align gaps in research and understanding where the money can then follow through to address the recommendations that those bring forward. And I was on a call this morning with a mix of funders, including multilateral, bilateral, private, and they were recognizing that they all commission things in parallel. They don't do enough collective sense-making. And I think spaces that CSIS hold and you yourself have curated are going to be really useful in pushing some of these agendas like leadership on anti-corruption in the next five years or so. So thank you for your part as well. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for making the time to be continued. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. Lucky you for being in New Mexico. I'm very jealous. It's a beautiful spot. The mountains are inspiration. And uh, yes, look forward to catching up in D.C. soon, Dan. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 